So we are like in Bain Hazmanim over here, prior to uh, establishing what we'll learn, but there's so much to learn. So I would like to share a, a beautiful... A, Rabbi, your equipment, not no equipment, no, not online. If you're not here, you're not here. It's being recorded? It's being recorded by Yafa's machine. Okay. <laughs> so. My son always listens live. Let's learn, let's learn about the Parsha. Okay. And, and let's make it as practical as we could. We're doing Parsha today? Just today. Yeah. Prior to having a new series. It's actually a great Parsha. So in the parsha of Ayigash, we have the culmination of tremendous wisdom on behalf of Yosef Atzadik, who was able to do what he did for sure because of the emes that he really felt no anger towards his siblings. He said it, and he was a tzaddik, and he meant it. Him being able not to feel anger towards his brothers, that sold him to slavery, which led to real suffering, is really very much connected to the Shara B'Tachim that we have been learning. It means when we take in our hearts the fact, the emes, that human beings only have the power to make choices. We have no power over the outcome of those choices. We have no power. And even if I'm working with nature, so if I'm going to drop the cup, it's going to break. The fact, and I have the choice to drop it or not to drop it. Even when I drop it and it breaks, if I were to do it right now, it was because God already destined that Aranit is going to have broken glass over here Tuesday, 11 a.m. And if I would not do it, someone else would do it. In other words, we have power as far as our choices are concerned. We have no power as far as what it does to the world. That's God's doing. Not 99%, 100%. Easy to say, easy to say. People can speak about it for a year, and then when someone bangs them on the head, they're angry at the banger. Now, I'm not saying that we're not chayef to protect ourselves going forward. We are. We are. If, I, if it appears that someone is trying to harm me, I'm not allowed to say, that's what we learned in Pedic Revi. Okay, it's God's doing. It's going to happen regardless. So why prevent it? It's also to live that way. The fourth chapter. But when it already happened, to really accept that it was God's doing... Which, which will make all of our emotions directed towards God. And I don't even care how not positive those emotions are. We're on the right track. goes without saying that if you really believe in God, if you learn about God, you can't be angry with God. You can be frustrated with God. You can be um, perplexed with God. It's not shayach to be angry if it is at God. But that's another topic. Because if you can be angry at God, then you're not believing in God yet. But that's separately. The main thing is, is that our shaykhs, our relationship, our dialogue is with God. Going forward, protect myself, act responsibly. Once it happened, it was God's doing. Yosef HaTzadik really believed in this to the point that after he was sold into slavery, he had no anger towards his brothers. Amazing. Can you imagine? 
I, it's hard for me to imagine that he had no anger towards his brothers, and therefore he was of, he was in the place where he was able to do something extraordinary. I think that emotions are beautiful and they are powerful and they have their place, but if a person is experiencing an emotion out of the right place, they confuse everyone. Emotions trips everyone up. Mm-hmm. I had a plan. If I only would have done my plan, everything would have been amazing. I couldn't help myself. I was too angry, too sad, too excited. And Yosef HaTzadik stayed cool. What was his plan? His plan was his, his brothers made a terrible choice. He's going to help his brothers do tshuva. And, and That's because of the brothers. The, the brothers made a bad choice. Forget about him getting to the, he wasn't the worst and the worst and the best. All of that is God's doing. His brothers made a sinful choice. And you know, there are different choices. There's a choice of, you know, not being that careful, not waiting the full six hours, okay, between meat and milk. And then there is a choice of selling your brother into a slave and doing it. As far as as far as they were concerned, they they it was horrible. Shuva minimally means I'll never do that again. Ideally, tshuva means the opportunity was given to you and you taka did not do it again. Not in theory, in practice. And even greater is to do the opposite. So they sold a brother into slavery. What would be the undoing and the opposite? To have another brother, a brother who is being taken into slavery and they're going to give their lives to stop that from happening. And that afforded the brothers real tshuva. Now, how do you how do you do that? How do you give people such an opportunity? So we all read the parsha; it's very emotional every year. He mamish set them up, and I think he was able to do it because he wasn't angry. He wasn't angry. He was not uh, reacting. He was proacting, and it worked with God's help. Everything is was was God's help, and it could happen. And, and, and Binyamin is being taken as a slave. And you have 12 brothers, not 12 brothers, uh, 11 brothers. Because Yehuda, I mean, Yosef was there, and they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna stop it from happening. You know, it's very similar to the miracle of Hanukkah. Who brought about the miracle of Hanukkah? May, Matisio, Banov. One family. One family. That's all it took. Everyone made peace with the status quo because it was beyond our control. The fact that the Greeks stopped, they stopped avoiding the Beis HaMikdash. We were not, to, the, the, the service in the Temple of Hanukkah stopped. And I'm sure many people, like sadly, tragically almost, many people are saying today, status quo, this is what it is. So we can't do the avoid in the Beis HaMikdash. Going back to the Temple Mount, oh, it's going to make the Goyim angry. It's going to cause bloodshed. Leave things the way it is. Same logic you had then. It was for years that we didn't do the Avoid and the Beis HaMikdash. It wasn't for two days. We got used to it. We couldn't do it. And we were Tomei. And doing it meant a few people fighting against the whole country. It doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense. You see the power of one Yiddish family. Matasio and his children decided we will not live in a world that things are happening against the will of God. They just did not accept the status quo. And you know what? They people got they gathered people, also very few people, but God was with them. 
And battle after battle after battle, they won, they won Nisim Venoflois, and they reinaugurated the temple service, which is more or less where we are at right now in Jewish history, Tavshin Pei Gimel, that um, all you need is that one family. That's what it looks like. And God is going to be with us, and we're going to build a base on Mikdash. That's the, that's the ball is in our court now. But coming back over here, so Yehuda, same thing by Yehuda. It was one family, 12, 12 brothers. They were taka very powerful and very strong, but they were standing up against a nation. Yosef was a representative of the, of the king. He wasn't a yachid. He was the Egyptian. And, and they were going to give their lives to save Binyamin. And you have this encounter described, and it's very emotional. And when Yosef saw what happened, that was tshuva. They did real tshuva. Not that they sold their brother into slavery. They're going to die to make sure that Binyamin will be freed. So this encounter between Yosef and Yehuda, Yehuda and Yosef, is a theme that we have throughout Hasidus. And it represents a lot more than only the confrontation that happened at that time. And let me explain to you the way Chabad Hasidus explains this encounter. And it was a struggle because at that time, they were on the opposite sides. Before Yosef revealed himself, Yehuda represented, Yosef represented opposite powers that were confronting each other. And I want to make this practical in our lives. And we all have within us these two powers that confront each other. And now we have to see who will, so to say, win over the other. In this story, Yosef agreed to Yehuda. He was the king, but ultimately, Yehuda wanted for Binyamin not to be taken as a slave. Yosef gave in. So let me share with you a couple of Hasidic stories. I want to share one story, but I want to give a story before that story. A story before the story. The story number one. Story number one. My message is from story number two, but I think it's important to stay story number one. And I'm saying this because this is shared in public. With the, it's amazing. You have in Florida, in a, in a place called the Shul, right? Rabbi Shalom Bar Lipsker. Um, I was there last time. There we go. <laughs> so Rabbi Shalom Bar Lipsker, I'm already going back. I had the merit to be a shliach in the yeshiva in Miami in 1983 and 1984, a couple of years ago. The shul was open then, and I think it was the Sheraton Hotel. It wasn't the building yet. It was Mamash in the beginning, and I was the Balkaida there. I'm also a, my mother and his wife are first cousins, so I had some connection over there. So he shared, and, I'm, and he shared it many times since. Something very unique happened to him, for whatever reason, many years ago. The Rebbe wanted to speak to him. That's not so uncommon. But the Rebbe had a three-hour private audience initiated by the Rebbe. But it wasn't the way normally a Yechidus took place between a Chassid and the Rebbe. Normally when a Chassid went into the Rebbe, there was a certain amount of the Chassid stood up. The Rebbe sat down. There was a certain Seder. None of this audience followed the Seder. Protocol. There was no protocol here. The Rebbe actually, you see, you have to be smart. The Rebbe's secretary called him up. And asked him, the Rebbe wants to know if you're going to be here, meaning in Kron Heights, for Shavuos. He had no such plans. He had the Seichel to say, of course. <laughs> so he says, oh, if you're going to be here anyways, the Rebbe wants to talk to you. I'm sharing what he shares. He says, he walked into the Rebbe's room. The Rebbe told him, Shalom Ber, sit down. 
Now, that's a big thing because we don't sit in front of the Rebbe. The Rebbe wanted to make it clear this is a different type of meeting. And they talked for a long time. Much of what happened there, no one knows, but he shares a few things. One of the things that bothered him, Rabbi Lipsker, then, the young Rabbi Lipsker, was that he witnessed more than once that people that were that were wealthy, who got close to Yiddishkeit, who began to become observant, started to lose their wealth. And there was a, it, at that time there was a there was a yachid, there was an individual that was in his chabad house, and it bothered him. Not the wealthy guy. I'm sure it bothered him also. It bothered Rabbi Lipsker. Like how can it be? And they were speaking about someone individually. He never shares the name, of course, as you'll see in a moment. But uh, there's a message. I know not for you, but uh, it's being recorded. The Rebbe right away responded to him. You have to find out if this man is faithful to his wife. Wow. And he quoted the Chazal that people that fall in that area become impoverished. So, Stam, like, yeah, the Rebbe's Ruach HaKadosh, the Rebbe was speaking to that scenario. Um, I hope it's very rare, but if it's not in this Oilam Hazan, not so rare, it's good to know that. And, and by the way, prior to him becoming Frum, it would not have affected him that way. Because he was becoming more observant, that means he was getting closer to God, so there was a certain expectation, and we have to know that for ourselves. On one hand, do whatever you could. Don't say, since I'm not good here, I'm not going to do anything else. I get that. I get that. Do, do, do. If you, I'm weak in this area, do the other area. That's emes. That's the olive base. But once we're up to Gimel, Dalit, hey, we should, in a nice way, you know, we should uh, demand something of ourselves that we who merited from the 8 billion peoples in the world. How many people are observant Jews? Such a small percent to appreciate the Ashreinu, Matoif Chalkeinu, and to keep ourselves to a stand, to a, some minimal standard and not to tolerate within ourselves, not for others. For others, we have to be understanding at least they're doing something else. But there is a certain expectation, which is a nice thing. That means God is already expecting something of us. He thinks highly of us, and uh, we should act accordingly. Anyway, that's, I do want to share that story because I think it's an important story. But I, I'm leading up to story number two. This happened, similar story, many years prior, during the times of the third Rebbe. Here there was a Jew that was not connected to the Hasidic movement. He was a big scholar and he was very wealthy. We call this amongst the religious world, Taira and Gedula b'makemechad. Taira means Taira scholarship. Gedula means wealth in this context. Gadol, Gedula. B'makemechad, we say Rabbeinu HaKadosh, the one that redacted the Mishnah. He was like the greatest of such an example. He was like the greatest rabbi of the greatest rabbis of that ever lived. He wrote the Mishnayas. And Rabbeinu HaKadosh, we call him the Holy Rebbe. His name was Rebbe Yehuda. Or he's known as Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Yeah. He was the Jewish leader in the Holy Land. He lived in Tiberias. He, he was wealthy. That the Roman representative in the Romans for times they they had their main let's say embassy on Yerushalayim, and there were times that they kept it in Tiberias. At that time, their main representatives that means the embassy, not the consulate. The embassy was in Tiberia, and the representative. Of Rome was a was a person by the name of Antoninus. Rebbe was wealthier than Antoninus. No, not Rebbe. I think they say Rebbe's stable person was wealthier than Antoninus. That's in the, whether that's an exaggeration, whether that's not an exaggeration, unbelievable. And by the way, just to speak about that, it's I'm getting completely off track. But since we don't have a topic, these are good stories of Jewish history. <laughs> Rebbe and Antoninus's mother 
they both lived in Tiberias. That means even though that he was a Roman, but the Romans, what they did very often, they had a big empire, is that they wouldn't send someone from Rome to represent them in any vassal state. They would take a local Roman who already understands the politics. It's easier to rule that way. They were loyal to Rome. Antoninus was a, he was a guy, he was a Roman, but he was he grew up in Tiberia, and Mamish and their mothers were were neighbors and they were friendly. I want to begin from the the middle, then I'll come back to the beginning. Antoninus and Rebbe became friends. Childhood. I don't know at what point. They were were for sure. I'm going to go backwards. Before they became... And Antoninus, before they became great, and Antoninus built a tunnel. I wish we're going to find it. They should find this. From from his home into into Rebbe's home. Because he wanted to learn about Yiddishkeit. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the tension between Rome and, and the Jewish people, he, according to our tradition, converted. Besoit, besecret. But that was after learning a lot from Rebbe. So that was a great moment in our history. We're speaking about, uh, what, maybe maybe 40 years after the Bar Kokhba revolt, or maybe more or less 50 years, 60 years, not more. It was the worst of the worst. They were like Nazis. They killed... They killed millions of Jews, the Romans and the Jews. And it's what happened when the temple was destroyed was horrible. But after they actually destroyed the temple, they weren't out to kill the Jews. That's it. They they took away the Beis Hamikdash. They felt they broke our spirit, which they did, and then they let us live. After we made a revolt against them, Shimon Bar Kochba, and he succeeded for, for three years, and he had a he had a stronghold in uh, Beitar. And he said, he, I'm a Shiach. He had the support of all of the rabbis because Mashiach doesn't have to be uh, the greatest tzaddik of the generation. It would be nice. Mashiach has to be an observant Jew that is going to build the Beis Amigdash. And he says, he said, I'm a Shiach. I'm going to build the third temple. And, and he kept on winning against the Romans. And then he made his own coinage. That means he began to declare Israel as being independent. We have coins from the era of Bar Kokhba. In the Goyeshi years, his power, his the height of his power was in year 132 to 135. In the common era, in the calendar that we the Goyim use today. And ultimately, Rome sent a big amount of soldiers, tremendous, to Betar. And more Jews got killed then than got killed in the Holocaust, in one battle. In other words, they went there, they wanted to make sure that no one is going to rebel against them because if we would succeed, then other of their vassal states would rebel against Rome. They Not only did they kill millions millions of Jews, they did not allow us to bury them. I mean, it was, a, it was the, the worst, it was the darkest time in Jewish history, mamish like the Holocaust. So you're speaking about, this happened in, in year 135. Rabbeinu HaKadosh wrote to Mishnah in year 180, so we're talking about less than 50 years. These stories happened prior to that. So to have the main representative of Rome befriend the leading rabbi and convert was like, wow. It would be like the Pope becoming Jewish, like that. Can you imagine if the Pope would become Jewish? That would be cabalding. Well, Abavitsche, Litvish, I don't know, there'll be some inner politics, but that would be like, oh my God. It'd be a great, it was a transformation. And, and, and I want to go back. I'm, I know I'm off topic. So how did that even come to be? So the Gemara says, this is beautiful. And then the Medrash expounds a lot more. That when they were, when Nebi was born, 
after Rome, and this is all part, they, they won, they made a takana, brismila, they're going to kill the parents. They're going to crucify the parents. So many Hidden didn't do a brismila. The Rebbe was born, the parents were not going to have him uncircumcised. But, the, you know, the Romans knew the women that were pregnant, like Padre. They kept, and they knew we do it on the eighth day. So what did Rebbe's mother did? Rebbe's mother asked the mother of Antoninus, they were born on the same day. Let's switch babies. And they came to check. And 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 when they came to check Rabbeinu HaKadosh, they opened up the diaper of Antoninus. Mm-hmm. Now the Medrash says that during those few hours, Antoninus got hungry, and Rebbe's mother fed Antoninus. So the Medrash says, nursed nurse, she nursed him. The, the Medrash uses the words that Cholav Metame, Cholav Metahir. That means just like milk that's not kosher has a spiritual detrimental effect, that, that from one time that he was nursed by a Yiddish mother, he became curious and he became a Yid, even though the Goyim don't have it on their record because it was done in secret. And he was a cruel guy, Antoninus. That means all of the personal guards that knew about that, he killed to, to cover himself. Anyways, did he do it before he was Jewish? Or not before Jewish? A guy also not a lot of kill. He wasn't a big tzaddik, but um, so they say on Rebbe, Rebbe was He represented a Jew that was the greatest leading rabbi, and he was very wealthy. And there was no greater kiddush Hashem for God. I want you to know that. My father always said that. He's so right. There's no bigger kiddush Hashem than to have a observant family that's not wealthy. Very wealthy. It's a big Kiddush Hashem. It has a big, good influence. It, it shows people, you can keep Shabbos, you can keep kosher, and uh, it's Kavaldic. And Rabbi Rabbein HaKadosh showed that. That's the way it's going to be when Mashiach comes. You don't have to be uber wealthy to have a good life, but someone who's very, very, very wealthy, and they're from, it's beautiful. It's the way, it's the way it should be. Okay. Anyways, coming back to what I was saying. So this guy was this guy was very wealthy. We're going back in the times of the Tzemach Tzedek. And he was very scholarly and he was beautiful. Everything was beautiful. And he became curious about the Hasidic movement. And he began to, he got close to the third Rebbe. And he begins to learn Hasidus. And the same story. The more he learns Hasidus, the more he loses his money. And it bothered him. You know, where it doesn't make sense. So he asked the Tzemach Tzedek, Rebbe, explain to me. Now, this is not the same story with, with the, over there in Miami. Miami, we don't know the name. That was Taka. Now, this was interesting. So the Tzemach Tzedek tells this Jew that in the Holy Temple, when you went into the main sanctuary, even though we're not allowed to enter there, there were three things that we would see. First of all, the room was almost empty. Big room, tall ceilings. There were three articles. One was in the middle. It's called the golden altar that we're not going to talk about now, but it was very small, small. It was an ama, an ama by an ama. It was very little. You had, if you would walk in, when you walk in the temple, you're going from east to west. You know, it's the opposite of when we go today to the Kaisal Hamaravi, which is not where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be on top of the mountain, not under the mountain. But when you go, we would enter. When Mashiach is going to come, we're going to enter from the other side of the mountain. Whoever ever went to Harazesim, if you ever went to Harazesim, it's from there into, so there was big doors, and the, the men needed to go to the mikveh, oh my God, there was different entrances for men and for women, a man who went in there needed to go to the mikveh, there was, the entrance was this humongous pool that they just excavated, 
It's like amazing. And we, we entered, so we're going from east to west. If you enter the room from east to west, if you were to look on your right side, there was a golden table. Really, during the times of the first Beis Amigdash, there were 11 golden tables. Hashem told Shleim HaMelech, whatever Moshe made, make another 10. I'm talking about the table. There were 11 golden tables. People always envision a menorah. In the Mishkan, there was a menorah. In the second temple, there was a menorah. In the first temple, there were 11 menorahs. The one that Moshe Rabbeinu made, he made another 11, another 10. And there's like 18 opinions. How are they positioned? Amazing. The Shulchan represents wealth. Shulchan is for bread. Bread is parnasa, but a golden table means gedula. A golden atish. In Yiddish, they say the tall windows. Every culture has a different expression of very wealthy people. Because normally the poor people had little windows. If you became wealthy, then you made big windows. So they called in Yiddish, a guy that's wealthy, the person with the tall, with the high fence there. So that's, that's the right. The right is north. The right is north. If you're going from east to west, your right side is north. Right? Like, like here, here is west. Right? And that's north. On the left side, on the left wall, you had the menorah. The menorah represents chachma, godly wisdom, light, enlightened. You're talking about Kodesh, I'm talking about in the, no, Kodesh, in the Kodesh, uh, in the Kodesh, in the And you should know, therefore, the sages tell us that when you're davening Shemona Esri, this is both for a general equal, men and women, we'd have to daven towards the Beis Amigdash. So let's say we daven towards east, even though it's not exact, but let's say you're davening towards east. If you want to become more enlightened, East, a little bit south. If you need some Parnassa help, then go a little bit north. That's what the sages tell us. That's a classical statement. You, I don't know if you ever saw among certain groups of people that they love shuckling and shvane You ever saw the people that they shuckle here, shuckle there? <laughs> That's where it comes from. No, no, no. You, they, there's an origin. It's not stum. Came because this is a person that they want They want to be wealthy and they want to be intelligent. So the one shakal there, one shakal there. Don't laugh. This is where it comes from. <laughs> it's just to know. It's not stomach guy has OCD and uh, everything has a reason. So going to the right is spirituality? Going to north. Remember north. North, north. north is, is abundance in Gashmias. And south is abundance in Ruchnias. Oh, very important. And by the way, I can say I'm a, I'm a South American. Americans are very wealthy. North, but the Brazilians are poor, but they're enlightened people. I know you can argue with that. But I want to say like this, that all of the big koichas of, of, of spiritual tuma, like Kishuv, that you find always in the South. South America, there are their experts, much more than North America and South and Africa. All the Kishuv machers come from over there. You're in the South. Now that's negative, but it's 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 something not tangible. Tangible, Nesudar, Europe is in the north. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yes. Wait, you said north is you 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 North is the Shulchan. But that's when you want Gashmir. Yes. Trying to shuggle to the north. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't don't overdo it. Yeah. You want to be more religious. No, no more more chachma chachma. It's very important. Chachma and religion are two different things. Wait, Most religious know? people that you know are not chachamim. Let me make it. Chachma is enlightened. Yeah. Enlightenment 
is not connected to religious. If religious means being observant, you can be very observant and you can be in the dark. And you can have people that are not yet observant and they can be very enlightened. I want to make it clear, it's not connected. Rabbi, I remember hearing a Hasidic story that the Rebbe gave an instruction how he can be in one place. That's my story. So, oh, so now, so the Tzemach is telling this Jew, you want, he came in, he wanted to know, why am I losing my wealth? So he told him, you're losing your wealth because you were, you were wealthy. You were by the Shulchan. You were wealthy. Now that you are meriting to get close to Hasidus, which is the enlightenment of Yiddishkeit, so that means you're going towards the Menorah. If you're going towards the Menorah, automatically you're going away from the Shulchan. So he was not a dummy. So he says, okay, Rebbe, so please explain to me how could I take get closer to the Menorah and I don't want to leave the Shulchan. I'm not giving up on, I don't want to give up on the Shulchan. So the Rebbe responded. So the Rebbe tells him that a thing, a thing can either be here or there. Like a person. You can either be here or there. You can either be in the north. You can shuckle to the north or shuckle to the south. But a non-thing, that means if you're a bottle, a non-thing is equally nowhere at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Eliyahu Hanavi, when he's not incorporated in a body, he's in my house, he's in your house, by the, by the say that he's in everyone's house. When Eliyahu Hanavi manifests with a body, he cannot be in two places at one time. You know, it's the, the Samach Tzedek was telling that person that you have a lot of qualities, but if you would be bottle, no, there's no good translation for that word, but let's use the word humble. If you would be more humble, then you would be able, while you go to the Menorah, not to walk away from the Shulchan. They, they use the word nullified. Use the word nullified. Okay, whatever, there's many words to that. So here is the coming back to the Parsha. And this is so true when it comes to all of us, and every Jew needs both. That we have within us a natural bittle to God. We all have that. We all have that. And that's the most beautiful thing. It's the most basic thing. We begin that way. We're born that way. Bechlal, children... If you want to know how we are in Gan Eden, look at a child. That's the closest you get to Gan Eden. They, they are the way they are because they just came from there. They didn't yet learn the ways of the world. And by the way, the Rebbe spoke about this many times, including the Rebbe spoke about the fact that children have no patience. And the Rebbe was understanding it. The Rebbe was teaching us to view it through the right way of looking at it, that even though in this world, patience is a virtue because we all need patience. In Ganeiden, whatever is good happens right away. So there's no need to wait. So so they never learn patience. It's not needed there because if something has to happen, Bahaya happens right away. And if something should not happen, it never happens. Like this midah of patience is is a non-necessary muscle. So when they come here, they're not used to patience. The Rebbe was saying this in the context that when we look at our kids and God willing at the grandkids and, and we see a lack of patience, uh, yeah, they have to be educated, I get it. But uh, you're looking at a piece of Ganeiden, which is a beautiful way of looking at a child. So so what am I saying? So I'm saying that, that children have tremendous amount of bittle. Like they, they trust. They don't have to understand things. They, they accept things the way it's told to them. Belief, shalom. That's why I don't like the word nullified. Children are not nullified. But children, let's say, are not... Um, emotionally developed, they're not. Nor are they intellectually developed. They don't understand. They might understand a lot more than we think, but they don't understand the way we understand. But that's to their betterment. The bottle. 
And then there's another part of the person, which is taka, the uniqueness of the human being, is that we have seichel and we have midas and we can think and we can we can really, if we educate, if we train ourselves, we can get very abstract. And it's amazing how the gift that God gave us that we have seichel. And the same thing, human emotions. I'm saying this animal emotions are very simple. They're very powerful, but they're very simple. Like I'm hungry. I'm, I'm talking about developed ahava and developed yira. The higher emotions are, are, are human, are beautiful. They're very developed. And you know what? Which part of me am I using? We have both. There are times in life, and let's speak about Yidin in our connection to God or in our service of the other. Sometimes the way to go is to be battle. See the word nullified, not to be a shmata. The way to go is someone asked something of me, even if I think it's a mistake, I'm going along with it. For them, that's bittle. That's bittle. And then there are times where you have to uh, use your own mind and heart. And the same thing is even directly with God. Like, you know, sometimes we have to put ourselves on the side, especially when it comes to the mitzvahs that we don't understand. And there are mitzvahs that actually we understand the opposite, even more. If I would have written these laws, I would have written the opposite. Okay, good. So this bittel. And then you have the opposite. It mamish makes sense. Like we are, we are like amazing. This is so much seichel there. It's, it works. It resonates. Let me use that word. Which one is more important? So Hasidus interprets Yosef and Yehuda. That was their encounter. That was the real machlekes. Yehuda represents bittel. Yosef represents wisdom. Yehuda was named Yehuda. Who named who was who, who to name children? Another side note. You look in the Chomish and it's not consistent. Many of them were named by their fathers. The Torah writes so explicitly. Who was named by the mother? Who, the Shvatim were named by the mothers. And Yehuda was named Yehuda Yudato Yoiducha Achecha. Yehuda represents Bittel. He was named by the mother. It was named, all of them are named by their mothers. An acknowledgement that something is beyond me and I'm going to give myself over to it. You know, it's, am I, I'm going to lose myself in God. Not become the master of. I'm going to be lost in. And we all have, we, we all have these opposite sides. We want to be involved in something that's greater than us. And then we want to master something. Yehuda represents Bittel. Yosef li Hashem ben Acher. Yosef represents enlightenment, growth. In Bittel, there's no growth. You're Bittel or you're not Bittel. Which one is more important? We need both. The question is, which one is more important? So even though Yosef was the king, Yehuda won. Yehuda won this encounter. That in our lives, we need to have Bittel. Bittel will win. And, 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 and this is a very important statement that many people abuse Bittel. So be aware of that. How would you describe Bittel? Bittel is whenever there is a clash of interests and one side has to give in. Right? So you have a couple and there is a let's do A or let's do B. Each one understands that their position is the right one. They understand it. They feel it. One party is gonna be bottle. And since Bittel is so great, I'll leave it for you, each one says. You be bottle. Because you're the greater one. But that's the machlekes. I mean, that's the issue. Which one? Both are needed, and the Hasidic theme of the parsha is how Bittel 
is going to win. Bittal to God. That's make it clear. Bittal to another human being is a whole different parsha. You got to be very careful. I don't remember the exact words. Somebody um, used to translate Bittal recently. What's it? Nullification. It's almost Bittal to another person, you have to be very careful when to be bottled to another person. But yeah, it's a higher level of connection because it's a different type of connection. Because it's not me. I become part of the other. Correct. The closeness of, of Bittal is much more than, than the closeness of self-expression. Because you have two people that are becoming one, and then there's all, the total mer- merging is Bittal. Correct. And it's important to remember that. When it comes to Hashem, we need both. Bittal has to take precedence. And like the story, when a person is bottled, they can have Torah and Gedula all in the same place. You can be by the Shulchan, you can be by the Menorah. I think life does Bittal to everyone. To everyone. So also we have to be careful. We don't have to teach Bittal. We just have to know and appreciate it when it happens to us. So if a person was bottled because life is beating, beating down that person, to channel that bittle at that moment and use that tasha. I think that will be a good application of it. Aside of hopefully I won't be bottled so much again, but now that I feel completely bottled, pick up a tehillim and say son, say a capital tehillim in the state of bittle. I think it's going to be the most beautiful tehillim you might ever say. You know, I, I want to just share that thought before you get there. I'm sorry, I don't want to lose my thought that that when imagine when Yaakov meets Yosef this week's parsha. Just channeling an emotion. They were apart for 22 years. Yaakov never stopped mourning for his son. We never had such an experience. And they loved each other. Especially since they were not together. This we all know how to do it. When someone is far away, you love them. And then for 22 years, you can't wait. And then you meet them. Right? How great is that reunion? Yaakov Avinu, the moment he was coming near his son, Yosef, you know what he did? He said the Shema. But not the way we say Shema. He said the Shema that when Yosef came to his father, his father was not available for the hug. He needed to wait for his father to stop saying Shema. Why? Because Hasidah says, because Yaakov never felt a feeling that, like this in his life. You want to call that excitement? You want to call that grateful? He felt something that was so beyond most Yaakov. people would... Yaakov. And he says, if I have such a feeling, I'm going to use this feeling to connect to God. You're very holy people, but just this idea that I'm saying, going back to Bittal, just that point, just the comma, that life bit, buttles us. Don't be mavatal others, it's happening to them. We have already too much of it, so I'm saying, be careful. But when you feel bittled, to take that feeling and to the right, listen, whatever's happening is beyond me, but I'm going to give that feeling over to God. And say Shema, or say to him, then at least... You properly channel the the, the, this, the beauty of Bittal. And think about the, the purity of a child and how a parent feels. That's the way God feels when he looks at us, when we are a child like with him. That. Shema, he said, was a Shema that we said during the day. I don't think he was an obligatory Shema. 
I don't know. You're asking a good question. Just say, so Mrs. Morvich wants to know whether it was by day or night. So I don't know. First of all, I'm sure it's written somewhere. And I don't think it was a mitzvah shema. We have to say shema twice a day. It was that he had a feeling and he knew that this feeling is once in a thousand lifetimes. Whoever had such a feeling, he wanted in that place, he wanted to say shema from that place. He wanted to connect to God from that place. He knew that a son is going to be there a moment later, but he knew that that feeling is going to fleet. Like all feelings, they come and they go. Using a feeling, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Slicha. Uh, so, uh, one question, the Shema is to unify, to, to sanctify Hashem's name. Why did he choose Shema and not something else? Because why, Hashem why Echad, I, I, huh? Why not Shechianu? First of all, who said we had the prayer of Shechianu? It was a, it's a rabbinically written prayer. Uh-huh. Um, Shema Yisrael, the truth is, was not written yet. He was the first one to say it. You know, well, now you're saying this. So I want to say this. What the, what the Gemara says is that while he was on his deathbed, which was only 17 years later, relative, I'm saying only, he lived 147. So he was towards the end of his life. When he was on his deathbed, his children were around his bed and they sensed that he was wondering where they're at, spiritually. Because his father had another son that wasn't such a big tzaddik. His grandfather had another son He's thinking about all my 12 kids are tzaddikim. Look at your kids. It's amazing. All of our kids are tzaddikim. That goes to everyone in this room. We just don't appreciate it enough. But we got this from Yaakov. So he was thinking, can be. Everything, you won every lottery. So they sensed that he was suspicious of them in a good way. So they said, they said Shema Yisrael. His name was Yisrael. Hashem Alekeinu Hashem Echot. And when he heard that, he said, Baruch Shem Kavayid Malchus So that's beautiful. So on one hand, yeah, the Midrash says it, and the Gemara says part of what I told you. That Shema Yisrael was said then. But he, but now you have this other Midrash that he said Shema Yisrael. And are they allowed to say their father's name Yisrael? <laughs> oh, good questions. All good questions. They were angry at him because you're suspecting us. Now, you know what? Your taco are not perfect. We're going to call you by your name. So good, or maybe they said Shema Avinu. I think they said Shema Yisrael Avinu. Then Shema Yisrael Avinu. Hashem Alekeinu Hashem Echot. You can pass away all your kids. That's the Kaddish. That's really Kaddish is that we're in pain and this. You left kids. We're saying Kaddish. We're sanctifying God. Yeah. By Yaakov Avinu. No, no. According to this story, the kids told the father. They said said because they were calling his name. Shema Yisrael, listen, Tate, you're suspecting us. No, we all believe Hashem Echad. And he he was so happy that all of his kids were believed that, that he said that he gave the biggest blessing to God. He said, Baruch Shem, Kabayim Al-Chusim, So here you said Shema before, but anyways, okay, you have the Shema. My question was, when we talked about the notification, you said to nullify yourself to God is much greater than to use your wisdom like Yosef. So, but both are needed. But both are needed. Both are needed. But when, you, like, let's say you have a situation in your life, and and you want to bottle dick in Yiddish, then someone else will have an easier time getting him or her following their agenda. But how do you say their agenda is worthy to be followed? You have to have seichel. You need both. I'm saying it right away. It's not to go through life only with bittel, but there's something um, beautiful about bittel. You know, when, when the Baal Shem Tev looked 
at what people did not then appreciate at the unsophisticated Pasha to Jew. He saw tzaddikim, mamish. He saw greatness because people valued so much seichel, which is to be so much that if a person wasn't that intelligent, they were not valued. Until today, go into a school, which kids are valued? I would sadly still, by most teachers, the student that 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 is hopping better, which is good. Even more should be the kid that 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 has good midas and that's simple. The Baal Shem Tov knew how to, how to value that. The Baal Shem Tov spent more time with these simple people. And you have all these beautiful stories that uh, you have in the back of the Tehillim, beautiful stories that, that, the, that the Baal Shem Tov or the Magid, that they were spending a lot of time with Pasha the people. And their students felt gypped. We came to learn. The Magid allowed them, he shared with them a certain sixth sense for them to hear what's happening in the heavens when they are saying to Hillel. That And that, that had nothing to do with Seichel. That was a certain bitle, a certain beauty that, that is unmatched. And yes, how do I know what to do? You need Seichel. I remember when we started on the book, you said, you gave us like an indicator, like if you want to know if you're in Bitachon, if you have Shalvat HaNefesh. Is there a trick like that for nullification, for B2? Like one thing that gives you a clue whether you are in a little state or maybe you are in a, a different state. I have an answer which is you're not going to like. The answer is like this, that, that the Rebbe used two rules like when people wanted to know what to do. Sometimes the answer was whatever you're attracted towards. Like you're feeling, you have a question, this feels sometimes whatever you're struggling with, that. The one that's easier or the one that's harder? Sometimes this, sometimes that. No, so what do you do now? I don't know. I don't know, we're in the dark. Do the best you could. I think you have to use your seichel. I think use seichel when in doubt. But once your seichel tells you this is the right thing to do, then bittle. Then be bittle, they can do it, be bittle. Not I understand it, I understand exactly. No, 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 you understand very little. Thank you. All right, so let me do like this, guys. I'm going to...